Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. For this week's episode, I have one of my favourite guests on the Just Checking In pod returning for another check-in in the form of Popular Front founder and independent conflict journalist Jake Hanrahan. Since we last spoke, Jake has been incredibly busy covering more underreported conflicts across the globe, particularly in Ukraine and its war against Russia, the volatile situation in French-controlled Corsica, the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia in the Karabakh region, and the continued rise of illegal 3D-printed guns across Europe. In this episode, we do a deep dive on his latest film, Ukraine's anti-fascist football hooligans fighting the Russian invasion and the Hoods Hoods clan which it involved, the dire situation that millions of Ukrainians are facing right now and the massacres that have taken place by the hands of Russian soldiers and the guilt he has said he's felt when leaving Ukraine too. We also have another check-in about his mental health journey, which is more of a fluid conversation this time around. So this is how part two of my check-in with Jake Hammerhan went. It is an honour and a pleasure to welcome the founder of Popular Front, my mate, and what some twit on Twitter called a football magazine editor or bro magazine editor, was it? Some how are you, man. bro? I don't even <laughs> watch football. <laughs> yeah, I'm good, mate. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, mate. I'm good. I just wanted to get that horrendous tweet in. Because, that was crazy. Uh, yeah. yeah. He was just like, awful, um, mate. for context, we were listening. Basically, I was on BBC News talking about Ukraine because the counteroffensive is going really well for the Ukrainians. And I was asked on there, they gave me a full five minutes. It was really cool. They talked about my project, my latest film, Frontline Hooligan, which was really cool. And this guy, he's like this kind of, I think he's like far right kind of guy. He's very pro-Russia. And he just retweeted it and was like, unbelievable. BBC is getting some idiot from Northampton talking from his bedroom about Ukraine. And I was just like, mate, I've been to like the Ukraine frontline like 12 times. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and thank God, actually, it was really nice. Loads of people came to my defense and were like, you fucking asshole, look what he's been doing. And he kind of just was like, oh, fuck. But it was really rude. It was like steeped in classism. And I don't want to be that guy that's like, oh, I'm working class. But like, it really was clear. So yeah, that's pretty funny though. Yeah, and he was like some football idiot or something like that. I was like, yeah. What? And he was a, he's a former sports editor himself. I know. That's what made me more surprised than anything, just to see his job title. And I was like, you know, when, you know when people are like, their hobby is being mad on Twitter, they cannot help but knee jerk the tweet out that's what happened but yeah how has the um response been to the film more generally bro very very good yeah so for anyone that doesn't know it's it's called frontline hooligan i'm sure you will have gone over it in the intro but basically me and my team a popular front we made a documentary with a group of lads they're one of the only anti-fascist football hooligan firms in ukraine they've been going for 15 years now basically fighting neo-nazis because as is with anywhere in europe there's you know a very annoying subculture of neo-Nazism in places like that, of far right, you know, like very anti-gay, anti-black, anti-whatever, you know, all that horrible stuff. So basically this group were like, okay, well, we don't like that. You know, we're anti-fascist. So basically they spent the last 15 years fighting Nazis in the streets at football games and all stuff like that. They're very, very strong. They're like very outnumbered. But you ask anyone, even fascist football hooligans in Ukraine, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, like, you don't really fuck with Hoods Hoods clan. You know what I mean? Like, they're serious guys because they're very close friends. They've kind of formed their friendship over years, having each other's backs and standing out against everyone. Football hooliganism there is different. The Hoods Hoods clan particularly are very interesting. They're kind of ultras, but kind of punks, but kind of their own cool thing, you know, really nice lads. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating because now as soon as the war started, they formed a unit to fight Russia. So just before they were about to go to the front lines in the east, where they are now, actually, they're actually very, very sadly, their commander died last week. Yeah, we went and spent time with them. They're just lovely lads. Probably the favorite documentary I've ever made in my life, actually. Like, basically just being around people that... It's nice to make a documentary. Okay, yeah, it's journalism, but it's nice to make a documentary with people you're like, I really 
like this. <laughs> like, I mm. like what they stand for, you know, and it's very much, it was the kind of anti-fascism that I always was plugged into as I grew up, you know, like anti-fascist, but in terms of, we're not on the internet canceling people. Yeah. That, Cl- that is class, just, that, still yeah, that's just nonsense. class. Yeah, 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 that's nonsense. That isn't real. I mean, one of their members literally died fighting Nazis in the streets. You know what I mean? One of them lost a kidney. One of them was shot. One of them was stabbed. You know, these are real hardcore anti-fascists and they're real hooligans you know they're boisterous guys very very boisterous and i like them a lot and god i hope to god that they all come back alive unfortunately yuri has died you know god rest his soul he's gone yeah they're doing real good work they're protecting their people they're protecting their families their neighborhoods and it offers a really different insight i think to the ukraine war but but ultimately it's a documentary about friendship actually that's what it really is you know and it's been amazingly like we've had a great response. Unfortunately, YouTube censored us. So it's age restricted on YouTube. So you have to have an account and all of this nonsense. But it's still done really well. Like it's up to 100,000 now views, which considering a censorship issue on YouTube is actually not bad. Um, and we've been touring around Europe, basically putting on screenings, you know, in person. And we donate all the money to Hoods clan. We donate it to the lads because they need it for medical equipment. We've been donating money now to Yuri's family. He has a young daughter and a wife. Really sad. Yeah, so it's been great, man. The next show is in New York. You know, we had one in Hamburg with the St. Pauli. We're basically like, we're touring them with anti-fascist ultras, football ultras, you know, of which there are many. We did one at Clapton in London. Great lads. That was really good. Clapton Punks. We did one with St. Pauli, some of the ultras there, Rot Sport, UH Fists Up. And we're doing this thing in New York. They're like New York-based Clapton supporters. And then we're doing one with Shamrock Rovers in Ireland in October which is going to be our biggest show yet. That'll be in Dublin. So yeah, man, it, it's it's all looking really nice. And it's it's really nice to have like-minded people at the events, you know, like you're talking about real anti-fascists, you know, and it, it's nice to be around these people. Let's stay on this topic of the Ukraine documentary for a second, mate, because there's a great quote from Konstantin, one of the fighters in the Hood Hoods clan, who when asked if he wants to fight Putin, he says, I think it will be over very fast. And I put in my <laughs> notes on when I was watching it, these men are on crud. Is that the immediate yeah, sense yeah. you've got? Like these guys man. are just fearless. So that's the thing. The catchphrase is no fear, no weakness. And they really lived that, you know, for them. The beautiful thing was it's not really political. It is political, but it's not, you know. So, you know, at the start, we asked Anton, who's kind of the de facto leader, a real good personal friend of mine now, you know, we've really bonded. His wife actually traveled for three days from Ukraine to Hamburg to come to the St. Pauli show to kind of represent them, you know, whilst they're on the front, which was great. But yeah, no fear, no weakness. And Anton kind of said at the start, he's like, look, I'm like, why are you guys different then? Most of the hooligans are fascists. And he's like, we see life differently, you know? And it's like, there's no real big, it's like, why are you anti-fascist? Because, (laughs) like, because that's the good thing to do. You know, some of their members are gay. Some are like ethnically not white, whatever. Like you got some Tatars, I think. So for them, it just made sense. And they're not on that stuff, you know? They really live it, you know? And they really do live it. And it's just nice to see, but they're really tough. (laughs) They're really, really, I mean, we, we included in the documentary, a lot of their old footage of them fighting Nazis and it's just mental. Basically, what happened was from what I understand is they were getting good and a lot of the other groups started to feel bad that they were getting beaten up by anti-fascists because they're like, oh, they're gay people or whatever, you know, some like All that some homophobia horrible... and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah, they're very homophobic, so they don't like that. And also like a lot of them are straight edge, some of them are vegans and it's like, so the fascists feel bad they're getting beaten up by like, vegans <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so basically all the talk on the old football hooligan forums it was like you weren't i've actually seen i've got a screenshot of it they were banning any talk of hoods clan because they were like we don't want to hear about them we're embarrassed so basically they weren't even allowed to go to these organized fights anymore so hoods clan were like all right well then we'll just find you <laughs> you know what i mean so they would just go and find them and punch them up and you know and it's it's really hardcore there's a funny bit about one of the fascist battalions he, he's mentioned in um, a book called 1312 amongst the ultras I've read it recently book. that was my next question very bro. good Great book, book. Yeah, yeah yeah so filimonov he's well i don't know what honor are really now they're kind of right wing but they're not as fascist as they used to be they have definitely changed they were certainly fascist back in the day when hoods clan encountered them and I think the only time Hoods clan is mentioned in that book is when Filimonov moans about getting beaten up by Hoods clan, you know, like, so they're real people, you know, they lived it, they breathed it, and they just did it quietly because they wanted to do it, you know, but now mm. I feel like I was like, you know what, I want to tell their story. And, you know, we did. And, and as you see, yeah, they're very tough people, but they're not nasty people. They're not rude people. They don't fight civilians. They're like the most beautiful people, man. They look after each other. You know, Anton says, if someone has a problem, they come to us and we deal with it for them, like no matter what it is. And I've been following them all on Instagram and all of that stuff since and before. And you can see it, it's so real. I was looking and I think, man, I wish I had that, you know, like you have it growing up a bit, but you know, you lose it as you get older. 
not these lads. They're mm. all together still. And now they're fighting as a unit. And who better to have your back than like your best friends that you've grown up in the streets fighting with? You know, it's, it's a great way to go out and fight a war. I think it's they trust each other. Yeah. yeah. And to a larger extent, I guess a bigger example of this fearlessness, I guess, was, was when I saw Vitaly Klitschko say on national TV he'd killed six men yesterday. I think that's when I knew that, yeah, these lot are really on stuff. I just want to talk about the fact that Hoods Hoods Clan is part of a wider collective called the Resistance Committee, which mm. is made up of anti-fascist, but also, you know, anarchists, other leftist mm. groups who have taken up arms. And I think Ukrainians seem from the outside to people in the UK to have this incredibly strong and almost nonchalant sense of civic duty to fight. And, you know, we've seen that with the, the size of the Ukrainian army. I think mm. that feels quite alien here. Can you explain that cultural trait to me and where that mindset comes from? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you get these kind of, there's a lot of, uh, the thing is as well, I want to mention first, there's a problem with conflict reporting in the West in, if you're not immediately diehard pro-NATO or neoliberal or centre-right, you get considered biased. You know what I mean? It's really weird. It's like, if you're biased to NATO, that's okay. You're a good reporter. I personally, I think NATO is kind of, I'm glad we have it, sure. But like, it's not a moral organization by any means. It's it's clear, it's objectively clear. It's not a moral organization. It's just a strategic alliance. So when you see people with like NATO flags on their Twitter, it's like, come on, man. Like, it's ridiculous. It's outrageous. But because I'm really not on that, like people like, oh, you're biased. So I was like, all right, you say what you want. I just have a different view. You know what I mean? And I've been in the fucking trenches. I've seen it. You know what I mean? So, but anyway, the, the point I'm trying to get to is because of that, there's been a bit of a whitewashing of, you know, there is actually a problem with like far right elements within Ukraine, mm-hmm. which there is in every single country in Europe. Azov Battalion I mean, is obviously the main. Yeah, Azov Battalion is a good example, despite mm-hmm. it being whitewashed, <laughs> but, it, but it is, you know, I've, I've done work with them years ago. I know who they are. Everyone should know who they are, but by some stroke of alchemy, it was changed. But that doesn't mean anything in comparison. Like Sweden just voted in, the second most popular vote was for an openly far right party. That's in Sweden, liberal Sweden. So to then turn around and be like, everyone in, in Ukraine is a Nazi. It's like, no, get real, get real. Something like 83% of the country voted in a Jewish president. It's crazy. I don't think that could happen here. You know what I mean? So that's nonsense. It's not a fascist regime or anything of that nonsense that Russia has said. However, as with any country, a gnarly, tough country, there are these far right elements, which is fine. You know, it, well, it's not fine. It's not good, but it is what it is. That's real life, right? We don't live in Wonderland. So I wanted to be like, okay, well, let's show the other side of it because, you know, you either get people whitewashing it or or going over the top with it, like everyone's a fascist. And I've been doing some research and I was like, well, there's a huge, and I'm talking huge, underreported leftist component to the Ukraine conflict. There's not just Hutu's clan, there's eco-platform who are green anarchist militants fighting right now in Kharkiv. There's Revdia, an anarchist group. There's Black Flag UA, an anarchist group. You know, there's Kharkiv hardcore leftist punks that are now fighting there was um operation solidarity there's solidarity collectives these are all like leftist groups that are fighting for their countries there's the nesta Magno weapons repair unit there's so much there's so much you know and hutut clan and fc lviv ultras 161 there's, there's loads of this and i just felt like it was going really underreported and hutut clan were kind of the epitome of the strong left so i wanted to show that and yeah so so we did that and i just felt that there was like a real I don't know. There, there really wasn't enough attention brought onto them. I forgot your question, though. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> don't worry, mate. <laughs> One thing I did find really interesting is a very unique Ukrainian sense of humor in the film, and that was, and it's littered throughout the conversations you have. And some of it is naturally very dark due to the situation the Hoods Hoods clan members found themselves in. And there's a particular part where there's three soldiers who are laughing about wanting to kill Russian soldiers. Mm. Do you mm. think that's their way of processing the war? Is it just a coping mechanism or is it just the way that they interact with each other? They're hooligans. <laughs> They're hooligans born and bred, bro. Like, you know what I mean? If you see them up close, I mean, you can see it with Anton. He's got like cauliflower ears. He's got a scar across his face, like in his nose, scar in his side. Their noses are all flat. They're tough people who grew up in a tough way. I'm not going to tell them how they should speak whilst their countrymen are being massacred en masse. Children, people being killed every day. Mm. I'm not going to tell them, hey, don't say that. That's what life is like on the front line. And actually, it's kind of moderate compared to some stuff you will hear in other front lines, actually. I want to tell a really funny story about that. So at one point, Sasha says, we want to kill some Russian pigs. And something really funny happened. Some like Western like leftists took real offense to him saying that they were like he's a speciesist guy he's what? kind of demean yeah demeaning pigs right <laughs> kind of went on the little rant about it online do you know how funny this is right this is even funnier sasha literally is a vegan who owns a pet pig and he loves that pig 
like most people love their dog. He loves the pig so much that some of the lads brought the pig to their base so he could spend some time with his pet pig. Right? Yeah, there you go. And it's like, and I just did this little tweet thread. I was like, actually, you're calling this guy this. He's a vegan he, and he has a pet pig. Oh, he said he wants to kill Russian pigs. Come on. Like, how are you going to police a guy's language when he's fighting on, on the pig. front line for his people? And he's like, in my opinion, you know, a very good person, you know? So that was funny. And yeah, in terms of Ukrainian sense of humor, like I have said this before the war, like, I've been there so many times before. I've been reporting there since I think 2016 or 2017. I love Ukrainian people. I love their culture. They're very tough people, but they don't take themselves too seriously. They're mm. really up for having a laugh. They don't mind being silly. Like you see it with Hortus clan and them, like their crowd, they're very confident in being themselves. You know, if you see them, they're all covered in tattoos. They're into punk stuff. You know, one of their members that is in our film, if you look at his page, he's like, does like naked posing art, <laughs> you know, like just, I love people that are themselves, you know, completely themselves, no shame, no, no, like worrying, oh, do I look cool? You know what I mean? Because that is cool. To be yourself is cool. So that's Ukrainians, man. That's how they are, you know. And and I remembered your other question. So in terms of the civic duty, yeah, definitely. I mean, when the Maidan happened, when the revolution happened in 20, was it 2014, Hutu clan got kind of criticized by anarchist groups because they made a truce immediately. They were like, right, we have a truce all the fascists because when we turn up to the Maidan to fight, which they did to fight the security forces who were literally shooting people from rubes, they were like, we don't want to end up fighting with the Nazis we fought with before. So they said to them, hey, for now, Let's just forget it. Let's think about our country for a change. Anything else, as Anton says in the doc, we'll sort out afterwards. So some anarchist and leftist groups were like, that's really bad. They shouldn't have done that. This time around, they realized they were wrong and they've kind of said, okay, we're joining as well. So that's when Hutu's clan formed with the other people. They formed with the anarchists. They formed with anti-fascists, anti-authoritarian, general leftists, you know, whatever. It's not all steeped in deep political it's it's i prefer this i don't want my friend to get his head kicked in because he's gay or he's black or whatever mm. you know so it's a real beautiful thing that in my opinion and yeah so that's they kind of had a civic duty and when some people say why are anarchists fighting for the state they're not fighting for the state they're fighting for their own well-being they're fighting for their right to exist they're fighting for their neighbors you know i mean if war came to britain i personally despise our government i am completely anti-monarchist i am disgusted with the Tory government and I'm not a Labour guy either you know but okay then let my neighbour let my people die let my family die because I disagree with the government that's outrageous anyone that cares about you know their people will help you know and that's the kind of thought of Ukrainians right now en masse so many people are going down you know fighting and you know you've got like people that work in banks dentists football hooligans everyone from every kind of facet of society it's a very big country with a lot of people so yeah of course you know, of course, people outside are going to have a problem with it. But who cares? I tell people, people on the front line don't care about your Twitter politics. Just always remember that. Nor should they, nor should any reporter either, you know. Before we move on to the really dark parts of the documentary, mate, yeah. I just want to ask one very obvious mental health related question, which came mm. to me. And one of the soldiers said, quote, the mental health is a problem. We will see before saying, quote, maybe I won't be interested in the football hooliganism after this. And I found that admittance really fascinating. Do you think in any sense there was an itch for perhaps some of them to experience warfare or perhaps experience that real sense of action? But then now that they have seen some of the horrors of war and the nihilism of that CPIM, perhaps the itch might have been scratched for good? No, I don't think that's what it is. It's a good point, but I don't think that's what it is. I mean, okay. a lot of them didn't want to join the military. In fact, sure. I saw one of them the other day, uh, Roma. He's the tattoo artist, he says. He's the one who kind of pulls a really funny face after doing the shooting. There's a video of him, like, shells are coming in, and he was just like, lol, never thought I'd be in the military. You know, some of them are anarchists as well. Hoods Clan, they're not an anarchist group. Some of them are, some of them aren't. They're all kind of unified by anti-racism, anti-fascism, but, you know, they all have different ideas. Like Constantine, he's like, I don't know, politics, whatever. I'm just anti-racist, anti-fascist. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. like there's different levels to it. But they didn't want to do this. None of them wanted this. You know, Anton says, I want to go back to my life. You know, they just opened a gym, all of them. There was like a Hutsuds clan gym, actually. They just opened when they're doing like weights and Muay Thai. And they've had to close that now. So they're really annoyed. They didn't want this to happen. Anton was, you know, he was about to tour Europe. He does these talks about like anti-fascism in Europe. He's done it before. He was about to do another one. You know, they didn't want this at all. I think the thing is, it's Anton that says it. And Anton has actually been at war before. He's been fighting before in a militia uh, previously when the East first got attacked by Russia in 2014. He's one of the most honest people I've met. Like, he, he can only be honest. He's deeply intelligent, very well read, very smart guy. 
And he was just super honest about it. I think he's like, look, I don't want my brain to get fucked up, but I'm worried about it, you know? Like, mm. I spoke to him about two days ago, and he was clearly very upset that the commander had died. And I think they're just honest people. They're tough because they're tough in life. They're not tough because they act tough. People yep. that act tough might say, oh, I don't care. Of course you would care, you know? Like, anyone would. Any Anyone with, like, any morals or any, like, substance doesn't want to experience their friends dying and they don't want to have to fight for their country but you know they've stepped up and, and thank god they have but yeah i think it's a worry for him you know i think he's worried that he won't be able to go back to life as it was man i can't even to be honest like i, I mean i've never fought in war i would never compare myself in any way to a soldier at all I, i've never been a combat guy you know what i mean but even going to war and covering it as i have has changed me a lot you know it very much changes who you are and you can kind of tell, not not to be cliche, but you can kind of tell people when they come back from a certain war, they are different. They're a little mm. bit more, a lot of juvenile things fall off, you know, things that are sure I, I'm still like an idiot, like I'm immature at times, but there's a lot of things in life that just change for you because you're like, ah, that's not important. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's no point getting hung up on that because, you know, I guess you realize how easy it is to lose your life, you know? One of the first war crimes to reach the public's attention jake was the massacre at borodanka near bucha yeah. and what i found really moving about your coverage of the piece was when you spoke to one of the soldiers and you asked him how he felt knowing all those people were butch it's a it was a fairly blunt question which was fair of you to ask yeah. and fair of him to answer just tell the listeners about this context and were you surprised at his reaction and was it perhaps difficult as well from a journalistic perspective to ask it from a personal perspective for him it wasn't difficult because i think you know if you're there you go into the front we travel all that way you've got to get the real questions we're not out here making a puff piece you know sure. i want to know what you know eventually well they are now these lads are going to be killers they're going to kill because they have to because they have to fight the russian invasion but it's like okay well these guys imagine seeing like i don't know one neighborhood of yours just massacred blown to bits then you're gonna have to go and basically get revenge essentially i mean get revenge fight so it doesn't happen again but essentially there's some element of that there it's only human so i think it was completely fair and normal to just be like hey like you know what do you think about it? your fellow countrymen and women have been massacred and whatever and i mean i wasn't really surprised by anton's response because as soon as i met him i've been talking to him a little bit on and off like you know quite a bit for the last few months and i was like i like this guy like he's got a good vibe you know what i mean he's my kind of guy and when I met him immediately, I was like, this is the lad. Like, he's the lad. Like, he's the boy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you just very quickly can tell that this is like a real person. He's very clued up on geopolitics. He was kind of a bit, he was like, it's really stupid that my country are like praising Turkey because they sell us Baraktars. He's like, it's just a business deal. They didn't give them to us. <laughs> he was like, this is war. And they made some money. And he's like, and meanwhile, they're massacring Kurds. Like, he's a very yeah. educated, smart guy. So it didn't surprise me that he gave me like a really honest answer because he can only be honest. He's that guy. And we left that interview run for like seven minutes. And part of me was like, nah, man, it's too long. But no, nah, I was like, you know what? Everything he says is really from the heart. So I just wanted to leave it. I mean, it was a lot longer than that, but I, I didn't want to cut it too much. And I think his response was just super honest. You know, I mean, he says like, I couldn't believe it. It's a nightmare. But he says, I have to believe it. Like it's happening and it did happen. And, you know, it's going to continue if we don't kind of stop this. And I thought a really nice thing he said, he was like, I just don't want my friends to be in bed and they get shelled and, and other mm. people. He's like, I just don't want this, you know? And it's like, yeah, like that's a real raw, you know, you get a lot of hurrah type people on the front line I've met and they're like, I'm going to kill and I'm going to kill 20 people and I'm going to offend my people, like re get revenge for my people. And he was just like, nah, like I don't want this, it's sad. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Like mm. these are not guys that want to drink blood. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just don't want their friends to get fucking killed. And that's mm. a good way of going about it, I think. Before we move on to the other films that you've done in the time that we last spoke, mate, how did you feel personally visiting Buka? Because you've probably seen a lot of stuff in your time, but I imagine mm. feeling the ghosts running through that town must have been something that you're not going to forget in a hurry. Yeah, no, it was uh, it, it was Borodanka. So Borodanka, we, we sorry, yeah. To, yeah, 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 yeah. I was gonna go to Bucha, but then Anton was like, "No, it's Borodanka where we were." So I was like, "All right, let's go Borodanka." Yeah, man, it's dark, man. It's just dark, you know. You get there. The weird thing was, there's all these kind of remnants of like, you know, there's a Russian jacket which we showed in the thing, just like left on a pole somewhere. There's like kids' toys everywhere because oh. some of the flats were blown up. There's a scene where you see like two blocks of flats and like a big hole in the middle. That was one block of flat. It was blown up so much that the whole middle is gone. It's gutted. Like, if you look in the crater, you see, like, people's, their settee, their lights, 
you know, women's dresses are hanging out, like trainers, kids toys, you know, this is like massacre, man. Like this is complete, complete civilian areas. Even at the time, it wasn't like, oh, there are some Ukrainians on the roof, whatever. It, they just went in and massacred everybody, you know? You know, we've seen the evidence, the footage and the, the photos after when people got back in, when it was liberated, you know, people were tied up. There was, there was like, you know, hundreds of deaths and many of them were just, people had their hands tied behind their back and they were executed in the streets. So, you know, it was very dark to know that that had happened and there's a real feeling there like you can feel dread it's weird to explain and i'm i'm not like supernatural guy but i do believe in you know there's things you feel that like when a war crime has happened somewhere like you i don't know it's in the air man it's in the air you can feel it you just there's like this feeling of something obviously something bad happened you can see it but i don't know there's just like this darkness you can just feel it you know and it's, it's grim man and you know we interviewed that old lady and she's just like jesus man like she you know you her reaction says it all and actually, we, did, we didn't include it because it didn't really translate well. It didn't fit in. But the blown up building we were stood next to was her son's restaurant. He just opened up a restaurant and they blown that up. Like he's all his money's gone. Like, his, you know, his life savings. This is not a rich area. I mean, it's a nice area, but people aren't rich there. You know what I mean? They're not like millionaires. This is not the sort of thing you can like just recover from. So, yeah, man, it, it was bad and it's grim. But, you know, that's my job at the end of the day. I've got to go mm. and do that. And I'm lucky I can go home at the end of the day. These people can't. They ain't got no home left. So I try not, try not to dwell on it too much, you know, how I feel about yeah. it. But there's definitely a, a darkness. There's like a cloud, you know. I want to focus on a couple of other films you've done now, mate. The first and the conflict, which seem to have disappeared a little bit off the face of the earth in media reporting. And now it's come back a little bit now because of new current events is Armenia. the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in mm. the film that you did called Ghosts of Karabakh. So tell the listeners about this underreported conflict and what you saw. Yeah, so it's changed a little bit now, but essentially like nearly two years ago now, there's a contested region between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's called, well, the Armenians call it Artsakh and the Azerbaijanis call it Nagorno-Karabakh. One says one own it, one says the other own it, whatever. Now, I was quite annoyed with the coverage because again it came down to nato or the un sorry recognizes that artsakh or karabakh we'll just call it karabakh whatever karabakh was you know they say well it, it belongs to azerbaijan so basically all the like very pro un reports just went okay well it's azerbaijan's and it's like well there are churches in that area armenian churches that are older than azerbaijan <laughs> you know what i mean so it's kind of like well who sorry older than the united nations so then why do the united nations then get to say oh, well, we've decided it's theirs. It's like, come on, man. Like, I think that's a very arbitrary rule to be like, well, the UN said it. It's like, come on. Is that the golden rule? You just trust what they say? I would suggest looking up, you know, United Nations scandals to see that they're not always right or not always yeah, doing I mean, stuff. read Sally Hayden's book. I mean, that's uh, Read a, Sally yeah. Hayden's book. And Sally Hayden is one of the most honest reporters ever. She's a friend of mine. She's one of the few people I trust completely she's a very good person you know i know her and a, a real good friend of mine we kind of came up together we both worked at vice at the same time and you know yeah i really she's a very good person and one of the best i wish i could be a reporter as good as her like it's unreal how good she is she will not let anything go she won't let it die she will stay up all night you know like in the book texting refugees and getting she like went above and beyond getting people out to be a good reporter, you have to have a good soul. Some reporters like, oh, you shouldn't be helping them because it's not objective. Fuck out of here, man. Like, I'm a human being, man. You know what I mean? Like, what are you talking about? And actually, the irony is you become a better reporter if you're a human, of course. But anyway, yeah, so Sally's great. Her book covers a lot of the United Nations scandals. I mean, even the EU. The EU is literally facilitating the slave trade right now in Libya. But of course, if you're like liberal, you don't talk about that. <laughs> you know, and when you do, people are like, Jake's off it again. Oh, God, he's going on like what about slavery <laughs> like i thought you were progressive you know what i mean you're only progressive when it suits you at home oh he's a leftist oh god he's so annoying like go away man like i just don't like authoritarianism in whatever form it comes mm. so the un has said oh yeah well it belongs to azerbaijan or whatever and i was like yeah well you know i i know armenians quite well i know a lot of armenians and i've done a lot of work there and i know that azerbaijan is an openly authoritarian country you know even the eu has said that the elections are not free and fair which is ironic because the people that always trust the liberal element suddenly ignore that. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a thing called the Azerbaijan laundromat where millions and millions went into influencing UN officials. UNESCO is absolutely rife with corruption in terms of directly from the Azeri government paying people there. Irina Bakova's husband, who she was the head of UNESCO for a while, he took £500,000 in... Um, what did he say it was negotiating funds or something like that and then like a year later azerbaijan was awarded this kind of unesco medal 
whilst then committing real bad atrocities towards Armenian artifacts in a place called Julfa. So it's like, oh, let's just ignore that. You know what I mean? So anyway, long story. <laughs> but I, I was like, okay, well, there's this region, there's been this real bad war and the war crimes were just insane. I will say that both sides were doing it, but let's add context to that. So the BBC, for example, would say, and I'm not, I'm not attacking, I'm not like, oh, mainstream media is bad. Like, it's good, it's good, but there's a lot of bad in it. You know, as with anything, I'm sure I've got a lot of bad in my reporting as well, but whatever. So they were saying war crimes on both sides. I was like, well, technically that's true. But if you look at it in context, which is what we do with Popular Front, you're talking about, I think there was like five or six videos of like Armenians like cutting off ears or slitting someone's throat, you know, like, you know, killing prisoners of war. Bad, horrific, shouldn't do it. But it happens and it's bad. You compare that to what are literally dozens of videos of Azerbaijani troops literally beheading. There's a video we included in our doc. We had to blur it, obviously, but... They behead an old man, kill his pigs, and then place the body, the head, sorry, on the body of a pig. You know, there was a flare-up in 2016 where two Azerbaijani soldiers cut the head off of a Yazidi Armenian and played football with it, um, filmed it. And then when they got back to Azerbaijan, they were awarded medals for doing so. You know, like, it's just, that's what you're talking about. So, and to give you another example, Azerbaijan opened up a war crimes theme park where well, they took some stuff they found on the front line, recreated war crimes that had taken place by the Aziris, and it was a theme park where people would literally go there and see it. And they had these incredibly racist depictions of Armenians. Kids could go and throw stuff at, like, stuffed Armenian soldiers. Like, this is insane. You know, this is madness. So, for me, I was like, yeah, there's a little bit more context to both sides, you know. So we went there and we filmed, and, you know, it was a very sad situation. No one's really helping them. Russia kind of helping them, but Russia's obviously their own kettle of, like, awful fish so anyway that kind of ended it kind of calmed down the armenians lost most of their land in karabakh now as of two days ago i think it is azerbaijan has started to attack armenia proper so mm. not the contested region they've started hitting the whole eastern border of armenia shelling grads serious attacks now azerbaijan says oh well armenia started they were provoking us we saw the moving weapons come on it's madness the government to be honest the government pashinyan the guy that runs armenia you know he has his issues but he himself was basically conceding bits of land in a deal with Azerbaijan to just stop any more attacks. The idea that they would then start attacking Azerbaijan, total suicide mission, you know, complete suicide mission. Azerbaijan is very heavily backed by Turkey. I mean, it sent, I mean, Turkey sent, in some cases, jihadist mercenaries from Syria to Azerbaijan to fight against Armenians. Like, it's, it's just a terrible situation. And it went so underreported just purely because it was like, well... That side, not what we like. This side, not good. It was like football match for a lot of these people. And, you know, I guarantee you we won't be seeing Armenian flags in people's Twitter names on anywhere near the same level, um, even though it might turn into a massacre and a full invasion. So that's that, really. It's a bad situation. And I don't know, man. It's like, what can people do? And some people are like, oh, well, we hate Armenia because they support Russia. Well, I mean, of course, Armenia supports Russia. It's the only people that are helping them. doesn't mean Russia's good. And a lot of Armenians don't support Russia. In fact, the first guy that died in the 2014 uprising in Ukraine was a Ukraine-Armenian. There's loads of Ukrainian Armenians fighting right now on the front against Russia. You know, life isn't a football game. That's how it is, especially war. And people refuse to accept that there's more nuance and context to war. And that's the problem. But that's what we do at Popular Front. We, we do a lot of that. And you know, on one hand, it makes us extremely popular, especially young people who are sick of being told what they should and shouldn't think. But then it makes us very unpopular with, you know, the very pro-NATO, pro-EU watchdogs. Um, also, like the kind of hard, you know, I call it fake left, but the very, very red left despise us as well. They call us CIA agents and stuff like this, you know. So it's great for us, though, you know, we love it. Like, we think it's good, you know. Yeah, the, uh, the left that good. basically support Russia, in essence. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, yeah, the people that support yeah. Russia. Yeah, they think Stalin was good, you know. <laughs> and they're like, actually, you mm. know, Holodmore was good or it didn't happen or these horrible, awful people, you know. Why is the West arm in Ukraine? Well, yeah. because, like... Where do you think this will lead? You know what I mean? Like, where do you think this is going to end up? I mean, if you've got the weapons, I mean, look, Ukrainians don't care where the weapons are coming from. They don't care. And why should they? What are they going to do? Turn it back. Sorry, I can't accept this drone. It came from Turkey. Sorry, I can't accept this gun. It, it came from yeah. NATO. Come on, man. You know, not at all. Before we finish, let's talk about the films that you've done in Corsica and mm. 3D printed guns. So tell me about Corsica first, because things were starting to heat up quite a lot when you were there. Mm. Yeah, Corsica is a weird one. It's one I've been like really, place I've been really interested in. A lot of people won't 
really know where it is. I, I, I realised I have to go in there. But I've always been obsessed with the place. It's this beautiful, idyllic island off the coast of France and Italy. And basically, they're not French. They're Corsican. They're not Italian. They're not French. They're Corsican. They're their own identity. And that's not like they've come up with it. It's, it's very real. You know, they even have their own language. They're Latin people. You know, they're Latin. They're not like, you know, like European French. They're very different. Real nice, great people. Very fun people as well. Real fire in their bellies. You know, I like people like that. Just in culture, I don't mean the riots. The riots were crazy. But basically, throughout like the 80s and the 90s, there was a militant group called the FLNC, which was, a, you know, like a separatist group that wanted Corsica to be independent. They launched loads and loads of attacks, mostly bombings on like French infrastructure on the island, a few murders, a few killings. It eventually all kind of split up and Corsica kind of had this strange kind of autonomous vibe. You know, France kind of conceded a little bit. One of the Corsican prisoners recently was attacked by a jihadist inmate in France in prison. And that just really kind of spurred the youth on to be like, hey, and he died in the end. And it was kind of like the youth were like, right, we are realizing that the politicians we have are not doing what they said. We want independence or we want more autonomy or whatever. And the youth themselves, like unbelievably organized, very political, very smart. You're not talking like, you know, trendy uni kids. You're talking it's just a part of their lifestyle. You know, it's a part of their upbringing, you know, so they're very smart, very switched on and they're very militant. So they created these huge, huge riots across Corsica like attacking the police, pushing them back. And it got so serious that the French, it actually worked. The French government went, okay, all right. So they sent someone over and the guy basically said, look, we're willing to maybe even talk full independence, full autonomy, like we're listening. So it actually worked, you know? And a lot of people were like, oh, it's really bad. They're rioting. And it's like, well, they actually got more. I, I mean, this is just a fact. It's not like my opinion. I don't think burning down your own neighborhoods is a good thing, you know? But sometimes good things aren't what make things happen. But like, basically, they did more to get France talking than the politicians did. That's what happened. So yeah, we were there for that. We covered it all. We got great access. We had an amazing fixer there. Really nice lad. John Colonar, lovely guy. And yeah, man, that's what we did. And we kind of, again, we brought that to the to kind of show the world, hey, this really old conflict is going on that you just don't hear about, you didn't know about. And now it's raring up again. And like, everyone was like, where? Corsica? What? <laughs> you know what I mean? And we, luckily, we, we had good access. People really fucked with us. Like, they knew who we were when we got there, which is really nice, you know. And they were like, yeah, okay, we'll let you film, whatever. You know what I mean? So it was great, man. Good film, I feel like, you know, we did it. It was a dispatch, you know, it was like a, like a yeah. 10 minute dispatch and whatever. Uh, we interviewed a politician, we interviewed the kids fighting and whatever. So yeah, man, we, we did all that. And I think those kind of stories are important. You know what I mean? They're like very mm. underreported. Okay, not as many people watch it or care about it, but you don't really do it just for that. You know, I'm not trying yeah. to go viral. You know what I mean? That was a very funny outtake as well that you posted. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> the one where the guy's walking past you literally as you're in shot and you're like, bro, you're in shot. Oh, just push my <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's crazy, man. We were filming and he was like, he kind of like was like, get out of my way sort of thing. I was like, mate, can you, can you please step out of frame? <laughs> Things like that are annoying. But I like working with other people. I love like that kind of collaboration, but you do get it a lot in war reporting and conflict, particularly some people have crazy attitudes, you know, like, and they're just like, get out my way. I need the shot. And it's like, man, just wait one minute. Relax. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Relax. Like, yeah. relax. In our last conversation, bro, you spoke about a film you did on the rise of illegal three printed guns and a manufacturer called Jay Stark, who was definitely yeah. an interesting character. He tragically died in the last year. So yeah. just give me your reflections on the film, him, and what is currently happening on the streets in the UK when it comes to these guns. Should people be worried? Should people not be worried? What's the situation? Well, yeah, so I'll, I guess I'll talk about Jay Stuck first. So yeah, like, you know, rest in peace, Jay Stuck. He died. There's a conspiracy. The police killed him. That's not what happened. Basically, he got raided because he was by... Uh, he kind of did everything. He did all the OPSEC, whatever. He was very careful. Like with our doc, we were like super, like we actually showed it to him. We're like, look, I don't want you to get arrested off of our work. That's just not what journalists do. You should never get someone in danger. You should always protect your source, whether you agree with them or not. So I was like, are you sure? Like this is this, this. He was like, yeah, everything's good. There's nothing here that identifies me, whatever. And we were like, okay, cool. There's a few red herrings in there. You know what I mean? Even so that he put in there that we didn't realize that people were like, oh, it's there. And it's like, no, he's like, leave that in. You know what I mean? I was like, whatever. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, I didn't fully get it at the time. I do now. But yeah, basically what happened was he was buying these pneumatic tubes for the rifles of the gun. So the gun is like 80% 3D printed and you need like some kind of, you know, not a lot of knowledge, really. You can learn it in a couple of weeks if you're dedicated, you know, and you can learn how to make this fully firing nine millimeter gun. You know, it's, it's like a, it looks like a small rifle, but it's essentially like a, a nine mil. Anyway, so he was ordering these pneumatic tubes from China. And when he was buying them, for whatever reason, 
there's certain things that banks have to flag to the police to say, hey, someone's buying this. It could be used in a pipe bomb. It could be, you know what I mean? Like he's buying it. He's a private citizen. Why does he need so many? Or why is he ordering them? Whatever. So they flagged it to the police and the police started investigating him like that. And then I think there was a problem where one of the Bitcoin companies gave up his details to the cops because they were looking into it more. And it was about two years after we'd filmed with him. Anyway, so he gets arrested. He gets raided. They didn't really find anything. He drives to his parents' house who, well, I don't want to talk about his personal life. Yeah, he drives to his parents' house and he's like in his car apparently afterwards. I didn't know this at the time, but he had a weak car. He had a heart condition. And apparently he just had a fucking heart attack in his car, I guess from the panic, from the stress. And he died like that. Yeah, yeah, it's very sad. A lot of people think there's a conspiracy. A lot of people wrongly say that he was arrested and died in police custody. That's not what happened. He was released upon further mm. investigation or whatever so the guns have never been su- found sudden no cardiac death yeah. which is happening to a lot of guys actually exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so that happened to him and it's it's people like he didn't have a weak heart i know people that knew him personally in his life before 3d printed guns he did he did have a weak heart so yeah it's true so yeah so it's very sad um you know again i'm not someone that has to agree with someone completely to enjoy their company and like who they are i like people that are fascinating and over the years we got talking after the before and after we spoke for like three years two years before the doc we spoke quite a lot afterwards and I was very sad he died. You know, I was extremely sad that he died. He was a kind of a lost guy. He was kind of a broken guy in a way and kind of found his calling, I guess, for better or worse, making 3D printed guns. But should people in Britain be worried about? No, not really. I mean, there's very few have been found here. Unfortunately, there's some like fascist groups have tried to make them, but they've been caught. In like the Netherlands, they're big, but they're more of a fashion accessory for gangsters. So you can buy okay. a 3D printed gun. Like you, you can buy an FGC9. It's kind of a cool thing for gangsters to have. You know what I mean? I mean, there's much more other normal guns, you know, but the actual good use of them, in my opinion, you, we've seen it right now in Myanmar, where there's a brutal, brutal totalitarian military junta has taken over the country. If they catch rebels, there was a video recently where they cut the arms and legs off of them and just film them and like watch them bleed out to death. You know, they burn whole villages down, really bad stuff, awful, just destroyed democracy, gone. Now, there's so like thousands and thousands of rebels who are like, we don't want that. <laughs> like, this is not happening in our country that don't have access to weapons. They've set up 3D printed gun factories in the jungle and they're using 3D printed guns to ambush police. And recently we saw actual footage of them in action using them to fight this, frankly, a fascist junta. So, I mean, is that a bad thing? I think if our country was invaded and someone like or our military took it over, I think you'd want any weapon you can get to stop them killing your people and burning your village down. So there's that. There's also like um, rebels in West Papua, like they're using them. So... Yeah, it's, it's a funny it's a funny situation. I mean, the way I see it is you can use a car to drive into a thousand people at a festival or whatever, a hundred people and kill them, or you can drive to work. You know, I, I think in a way the gun is similar. Obviously, it's a weapon. There's only one use for it, but you can defend or massacre or whatever. You know what I mean? So I'm not on that thing of like the fact that it exists is inherently bad. I think, you know, you're never going to get rid of guns. And if some people somewhere can use it to defend themselves, yeah, that's good. But also it's bad if, say, some Nazi gets hold of it and then kills someone with it, it's bad. So, you know, it, it's both sides of a coin. What I do think it did, which we really wanted to do with our doc, which it did well, I mean, it's got like 2 million views, nearly three now. It opened up a conversation about things that people really should have been talking about before, which they they weren't before. And a lot of people are like, you shouldn't have reported on that. I'm like, look, my job is to say show people what's happening and then whatever else happens. I'm not the police. I'm not the authority. That's not for me. We didn't show how to make the thing. We were very careful to make sure no one can actually make the thing from our dock. We didn't give links to where to make it. And we certainly desperately don't. But that's what it is. I think it, I think it opened up a very interesting discussion. And I think law enforcement are probably much more aware that this is a, a risk to people than they were before our dock, I would say for certain. As a final question, mate, before we move on, what has this continued journalism journey and the films that you've done in, in this time taught you about yourself as well? Oh, that's a good question. Taught me about myself. I think I've really come to like, I guess, trust my own instincts a little bit more. And also I've come to, I've become a lot more, I don't know, like I'll accept, like I've learned a lot from criticisms, you know what I mean? And I, I'm quite, I mean, outwardly I might be like, ah, oh, fuck off. But inwardly I'm like, hmm, maybe a good point there. You know what I mean? <laughs> but whatever, call him an idiot, whatever. But um, at the same time, it's like, you know, you can take that on board. Not all of it. You might be like, well, that guy's an idiot. He's saying that because of this. But maybe despite the reason he said it, despite maybe there's a point there. You know what I mean? So I think that I've got quite good at. I've got really good, I think, at contextualizing things. Like I think Popular Front deals with like extremely complicated topics and puts it in a way, we don't dumb it down. We do the opposite. We make it more complicated, but in a way that's easier to understand, I think. 
which actually makes it less complicated. There's kind of a contradiction. But what I mean is we go into more detail and we do it in a way that makes you go, oh, that's why that happened. You know what I mean? Because if you like really try and simplify something too much without going into detail, people miss things. They think they're understanding it, but they're getting a very surface level and you don't really get something unless you understand it deeply. So I really feel like we've managed to do that. We do it with our, with our podcast and I wanted to bring that into the docs. And I certainly think that's a mission we've definitely like doing well with. Not to like blow smoke up my own ass or anything. It's just something I've really dedicated to doing. I really want it to be more understandable for people. I really hate this idea that, oh, the masses are stupid. They're not. Like, that's just not true. Like, there's, you know, intelligence comes in many forms. And I just think you have to basically give something to someone in a way they want to consume it. That's why, like, the way we make our docs, we make it look cool. You know, some people say, oh, you glorify this. We don't. Absolutely not. If you actually sat down and watched our docs, we don't. We make it look cool. We make it look consumable we make it a way where you go fuck what's that that's different that's good if you think that's bad well i would say tough luck but you don't have our audience which is like 18 to 30 you know by mass and we have a big audience and that's something people would kill for and i think that's great because we're trying to get to young people and say hey like you're the next generation up i'm not young anymore i'm 32 man i'm, I'm not i'm not a young guy anymore i mean i'm young but i'm not that young and it's like yeah we want to we want to be able to like give that to the youth and whatever and say hey you're next up you're the ones that are going to be running the country when we're gone as well <laughs> or running whatever like i think it's good to to keep them involved and keep them engaged but what else i guess i've learned as well like i'm a bit of an asshole <laughs> you know what i mean and i've kind of come to peace <laughs> in a nice that. way like, mate in a, well, you know I'm a, I, I don't i don't know man it's like certain things that I, I i'm not like arrogant at all like i hate arrogance and i hate snobbery but i'm also like you don't suffer fools do yeah. yeah, man. And I can't be bothered, man. Life's too short. And oh, you should have said that a bit nicer. Probably. Oh, you shouldn't have been so so aggressive. Probably. Whatever, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, whatever. Probably not. I'm an imperfect person. And I think it's very okay to be like that. And I think it's actually better for journalists to be like that. Because you see them as this kind of weird AI robot type thing sometimes on the news. Like, we're here in Afghanistan. And da, 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 da. And it's like, it's so alien. Like you're talking about one of the most human subjects on earth, war, death and suffering. And it's presented in a way that is completely unfamiliar to anyone. You go, that looks like the news. We pop you to front, you don't go, that looks like the news. You're like, what the hell is this? Like he's on the ground, they're about it. You know, and that's what we're trying to do. That's what we want to do. Not to say everyone's like that. Like one of my favorite reporters in the world is Quentin Somerville. And you know, and he's yeah, a mainstream BBC news reporter and he's absolutely brilliant. And I've met him, I met him in Syria and I just heard him. He was like, Hanrahan. I like turned around at this cafe and like Quentin Stomerville was there. And he was like the nicest guy, like came from his table, sat with me, chat to me, like giving me great advice. So it's not that I'm against, oh, me against the mainstream. I'm just against like this elitist attitude that is rife in the mainstream. And a lot of people, like the guy that brought me onto BBC was like, agreed with me. He's like, yeah, we need to stop this elite unhuman mentality in the in the news and in mainstream journalism and whatever because it's making people switch off you know it's making people go brain dead they would rather watch like i don't know reality tv and okay reality tv is fine to an extent but that can't be all you consume man like it makes you twisted you know it makes people jealous and it makes people want to do weird things like especially for young women and oh i've got to mm. look like this i've got to look like that like you have and to have men. some other outlet, yeah. some real outlet, you know what I mean? And a, or, or an outlet to consume or whatever and get educated on. I really believe that. And it's got to be entertaining. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, it shouldn't feel like a slog. And I think that's what we're doing. We're trying to do that. Anyway, that's the ethos, I guess. You know what I mean? So I guess I, I would say like I've just learned that I can, I can fuck up. You know, I can accept that, oh, yeah, you can fuck up. Sure, you don't want to fuck up with your reporting. And I, I touch wood, I can't see anything where I've like been like popular front made a massive mistake that I don't see anything like that because I'm paranoid about doing that. You know what I mean? And mm. also before popular front, I had years doing all this, you know, I made my mistakes when I was young, you know, I've been doing frontline work since I was 24. So you know what I mean? I'm trying not to do that. But at the same time, I'm just trying to be really honest with what we're doing. And I think honesty is like really important, but not just honesty in the reporting, like honesty in who you are, what you believe in, what you think is right. And and I, I really think that I get suspicious when reporters like I'm completely objective. It's like, what? So you don't believe in anything outside of your work? Oh, you do. And you, you somehow you special snowflake that you are, you're the one that is able to not let that influence any of your work. It's like really okay so you're god <laughs> you know what i mean and it's like it's actually quite a like big-headed position to have i think to say that you are that guy that can do that or woman or whatever sure i think probably sometimes maybe our biases have clouded things a little not clouded but we're very open about them and maybe that annoys people but it's better to be open about it than pretend you're something you're not <laughs>
We've checked in once more about your journalism journey, mate. Let's check in once more about your mental health, which would be remiss of me not to ask you about. This topic might not be as long as that one. So just tell me first, mate, since you've reflected on the pod, since we've last chatted, who's the Jake we meet now? I'm tired. (laughs) I'm like really tired. (laughs) I've got a lot more energy in some ways. Like there's a load of new projects. I'm starting a new project probably next year. It's going to be kind of like popular front, the same ethos, but like a cultural Thing. we're not covering war we're gonna cover well we're calling it like it's gonna be called bando magazine and it's starting with a print magazine but we want to go into doing docs eventually but we want to get some actual money backing behind us because we're struggling as it is with popular front so i can't really you know i can't keep putting money from freelance projects into popular front don't get me wrong popular front does well on the patreon but war reporting is very expensive and keeping all of this going is expensive you know so we're not able to match the momentum unfortunately so i'm working real hard on that basically like bando magazine is going to be like as a joke like i think it'll get people mad which is good the tagline is make journalism cool again (laughs) we're doing stuff like that and we we want like real underground journalism again you know like we've got a story about an article about a guy that just spent time living with the mole people in new york these are literally homeless people that live underground in new york in like sewer systems and like they turn it into like a home they have like electric and like internet like it's in computers like living down a sewer drain it's incredible we've got a piece by a sex worker she wants to write an article for us about how porn basically made the modern internet and i looked into it and i read the article and i was like it actually is true <laughs> like basically yeah. they realized like we need to include bandwidth we need to be able to get better internet because the amount of porn people were watching you know stuff like that we've got an article coming about a new type of fentanyl which is being used in america where people are injecting it into their neck I want to do real life gnarly shit again without any worry about, you know, investors or any nonsense or shareholders and or all this soft stuff. And also I want it to be like irreverent. We want to go back to that kind of fun way of doing things, but real serious work, but without taking ourselves too serious, you know? So I don't want to cover different things other than war. That might be a reflection of how I'm doing because I will always cover war because it's important. It's what I know better than probably anything. But it is very exhausting. I know so many people that I've had really good times with and enjoyed their company and now they're dead. And it's not just death, it's like a violent death. And it's like, ah, it's so brutal. And it's like, I guess I've been doing it quite a while now, like nearly 10 years. And I'm just, and I've covered so many wars. Like, I've, it's not like I just was at one for a year and one for, you know, I covered a lot, a lot, a lot. And I guess as I get older, I'm just getting a little bit tired not like in my body but emotionally from it you know what i'm saying it's not like i'm like broken or i've got ptsd but i'm just like man like jesus christ like there's so much sadness and you know and i will always be involved in that because i think it's kind of i don't know it's my role i feel like it's important but certainly as well due to various family things as well now you know my granddad died like god rest his soul like the best man i ever knew in my life you know like he basically raised me and he died like nearly two years ago now so I lost him. So now I'm kind of got to be the head, you know, of the family. And I can't be on a front line and die. For them, I can't die like that, you know. So I'm not saying I won't cover front line again, but I've got to be very careful about how I do it now. And also, mm. I've lost a bit of my nerve. You know, I'm not I'm not the guy I was when I was 25 and I was like a maniac. And I was like, I don't care if I die, you know. Like I look back to some of the stuff I did. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I'd be like, now I would be like, I'm not, do- I'm not going there. Like, And it's actually a good thing because better reporting comes from taking less risks actually if you're talking about war because okay yeah everyone wants the bang bang footage but there's only so much you learn from that <laughs> you know what i mean i would say you learn a lot more from the hoods clan documentary than if we were just on the front line seeing gunfire yes okay it wasn't a front line it was like a former front line position and it was potentially dangerous you know i think kiev got bombed the day we were there but it wasn't full-on front line you know there's ways to mitigate that and i guess i just feel that i have a big responsibility to my family to be well, I've got to be the breadwinner, man. Like, you know, I don't really want to go too personal, but there's certain sure. situations in my family, you know, especially now my granddad is gone. I've just got to look after my grandma, man. Like, you know, I've got to be there for her all the time, you know. In fact, oh, shit, what day is it? Oh, Wednesday, okay. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow i got to take her out. Like, you know what I mean? Take her shopping. And there's a lot of stuff that's got to be done now. You know, like real, I don't know, that's real grown adult man shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Being mm. a man is not about being like this fucking brute or like, oh, you do risky stuff. It's about looking after your family and your friends, you know what I mean? And being Mm. fair and and knowing you have a duty. And I feel like my duty, I felt, was always on the front line to the people that are out there and dying. But I realize now, like, you know, a lot of my duty is to my family. You know, I really have a duty to my family to keep everyone there. And not that, like, I'm the only one, but I mean, yeah, I don't know. There ain't, you know what I mean? It's me and my aunt, you know what I mean? And we're kind of doing stuff and sorting everything out. But, you know, it's a big responsibility. It's one I didn't really consider 
you don't realize how much a strong person does for everyone until they're gone, you know. And he was just, just solid as a as a as an ox man. And he never asked for nothing. He never said, "Look what I do for you." He never expected anything in return, you know. And that is what is really beautiful. And I think, like, yeah, I want to be like that. You just do what you do, and you do it because you have to, because it's right. Like in media, I think I've learned a really horrible thing that people only do things for people. Transactionally, yeah. But transactionally, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, one thing I will want to say, I just want to shout out like Andrew Callahan and, and Nick Mosher and um Evan Gilbert Katz from Channel Five. You know, all gas no breaks. Them guys, Channel Five. They took me. Well, I took them to Ukraine this year, and they're like big, huge media in America. Like they're massive. They just sold their documentary HBO. They got like a Rolling Stone piece. Like everybody knows Andrew Callahan, Channel Five. You know, I presumed he was a nice guy, but I didn't realize how good they are kind of gave me faith in like journalism again, like independent journalism. Like these guys are just like, you know, okay, we did our work. It was all cool. And then, you know, it was whatever. And it wasn't a transaction either. Like it was a favor. I was like, no, I don't need paying for this. Like, let's go. Like, you know, obviously it's helped me, you know, it put me on a bigger platform. But also like, you know, you talk to them, they check in, hey man, how's things? How's your family? How's life? Like we miss you, bro. Like, And it's like, yeah, that's nice. And they're not asking me for anything. And I ain't asking them for shit. It's just like, it's good to do things with good people, you know? It's funny, I was saying to Anton's wife, she was like, we can't believe how much you've like helped us with all this, you know, Hoods Hoods Clan. And I was like, good people help good people, man. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not saying I'm a good yeah. person, but I want to be, you know what I mean? And mm. I think that's really important. So I guess that's the kind of mental thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. Guess. You raise an interesting point there when it comes Majority, to feel. you, you feeling the pressure or a pressure to be the breadwinner, mate. And I guess it probably plays into a lot of the modern mental health crisis that a lot of men are facing today where perhaps they weren't the breadwinners they would have been 40 years ago you know women have obviously and quite rightly so progressed in the world earning more having more positions of influence and there's this perhaps lack of purpose that a lot of men are facing and it's not necessarily Mm. and you know my opinions evolved over the years I don't think it's to do with toxic masculinity it's to do with a lot of men not feeling like they have a purpose in life so Mm. do you feel that responsibility and you know like you said about your granddad he exhibited all those positive qualities about perhaps say traditional masculinity of protection of providing of being maybe not stoic is the word but supporting every yeah well maybe maybe yes in his case but supporting others without asking for anything back that sort of masculinity yeah that and that is important, but I wish there was another word for it because women sure. do that yeah. every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, one hundred percent. Every single mother. I, I wanted know, to find a different word, but I couldn't. <laughs> no, no, I, I do as well. I don't know what it would be, but I don't personally consider like masculinity like a necessarily male trait. It, for me, I know that's what it is, whatever. But in my head, it's just a doer, an active person that gets it done. You know what I mean? Like a like a boss man, a boss woman. You know what I mean? Like they just get it mm. done, and they do it because that's what you do. You know, you look after your family. You are loyal to a fault to them. It is not a fault to be loyal to your family to a fault. You know what I mean? But also you pick them up when they mess up. My granddad was so honest. And that was like, I mean, he was very conventionally masculine, but maybe in other ways he wasn't, you know, he's like an old guy who grew up in a very poor area, grew up very poor in Ireland. And he came to England and like, he taught us everything about, you know, the reason I am the way I am is because he was, you know, from, from like knee high, he was like, we do not like racists. We do not like fascists. We, you know, we are not against gay people. Like, and not even really in a political way. It was just like, this is what it is to be a good person. You don't tread on people because they think different or they are different. You know what I mean? So for us, we were like, you know, I was very lucky to have that in my life from very early on. But he was a very fair person, but a very, if you cross us, it's over. You know what I mean? And it's, I think that's good. I don't mean like violently, but it's just like if you cross, you know, if you're that honest and that open and that helping with somebody, the only thing you re- expect in return is to not have someone shit all over you you know what i mean or abuse that trust or abuse that and if you do that's it cut off dead and it's like yeah but that's how it should be because actually it's it's protecting your family from people that will just abuse you and and like suck the life force out of you but also i think my point is those people are not always necessarily i mean for me i'm the same like that's it i don't want to hear you again but they're not necessarily evil or bad it's just maybe the way they were raised is just to be take 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 you Mm -hmm. know what i mean and it goes back to your point of like, yeah, a lot of young men are lacking purpose, man. And they think that this whole like secure the bag culture, like get rich by any means, like, oh yeah, don't spend too much time on relationships. Oh, fuck that bitch. You know, like all that, that shit is Crypto toxic, is now man. massive, probably a factor in that. I you guess. know what I mean? Get like rich that quick thing, stuff, like yeah. get rich quick, man. And it's like, that is toxic actually. And that's why I've, um, you see it a lot, like especially in poorer neighborhoods where you'll see like the big boss man drug dealer and don't get me wrong. Like I, I know people like that. 
And it's like, oh, are they the boss, man? How? They're abusing their own community. They're feeding poison to people that are already at their lowest ebb. And they want to take the lives of people for nothing. That is not the boss, man. That is the weakest, man. That mm. is the weakest person in the whole community. The strongest person in that community is the single mother that works two jobs and raises her kids right, despite having no money and no direction. You know what I mean? So I, I don't want to give too much credit to like directionless young men because actually there is a lot of excuses. There is a lot of excuses. You know what I mean? I've seen it. Oh, I'm a product of my environment. It's like, well, mm. for every, every trapper, there's 10 single mums just doing their job. Or a normal guy that's holding his family together and he works at the shop or he's a plumber or, you know what I mean? Like, mm. everyone has a choice, essentially. But I do also feel very sorry for, like, young men growing up now. I, I certainly wouldn't want to be a young man, a young, young man in this time. There's so much pressure and the constant surveillance of social media. Yeah. Just hell on earth. Oh, it also breeds a really... Again, another thing I'm trying to do with my new project is bring back this... And we do it with Popular Front. We bring back this thing of don't try and be too cool for school. The person that is dancing silly at a party, completely letting go, is having so much more fun and has more purpose in life than the person that is slyly filming them, laughing at them. I learned so much about people when I worked at Vice, this snide, like, oh my God, have you seen what he's wearing? Have you seen what he's doing? And I just thought, fuck off. <laughs> like, leave them alone. Like, you snob. Like, you're basically the fun police now. But that is unfortunately like a real problem within the culture of like young men and women, especially as women as well. Like, you always have to look cool because everything we see on social media looks cool, looks cool, looks yep. cool. So <sighs> the worry is they're trying to, you know, reflect that in life. And actually, what is really cool is not a still image of you looking wicked. It's you having a great time and letting go and having fun within limits. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like, yeah, get on the crack, boys. That's fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, you know, like just enjoy your life, you know, and like life is short. And I don't know. I learned a lot of this from kind of Hoodswood's clan, you know, like they were kind of saying like, you know, their outlook is they're like, yeah, we want to like crack the skulls of Nazis and enjoy our life. <laughs> you know, mm. they have this thing, uh, Kaferik, it's like written on their patches and it basically means to get high on life. It's basically good vibes. And they have that on their military patch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Most battalions have skulls and guns. Nah, they got mm. like this, like they're like, let's rock kind of hand sign and Kaferik. And I was like, that's beautiful. That sums it up to me, you know, look after your people, look after your friends, have purpose, work hard and enjoy it, you know. But mm. that said, it's very easy for me to say that, you know, Popular Front is doing well. I've been a freelance reporter for like, you know, a long time now and, it, you know, things are okay. It's like if you're working nine to five, breaking your ass, how do you even have time to enjoy your life? You know, yeah, it's, it's hard. Very, <laughs> it's very, it's very, do you know what I mean? It's hard, isn't it? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? So like the fact, you know, again, it's like, think, oh, everyone reads The Sun. I'm like, well, that's a shame because, this, you know, they're, they're, you know, in my opinion, just horrendous. They've really helped destroy the working class in Britain. But at least people read anything these days. I don't want a very close family member of mine works about like 70 hours a week and earns like less than a supervisor in JD Sports. That's outrageous, you know, and they work for the NHS. She don't have time to do anything. You know what I'm saying? Mm. You know, wonder she's stressed out or whatever, mm. like. So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of contradicting myself now, but I just, I'm very sad about the way the country's going, you know, and not just this country, just Europe and we're everywhere, everywhere, man. You know what I mean? I'm sad for everybody. Like, I just think we're in a very bad position. And I think like, I don't know, man. I don't know what it is. I ain't got no answer, to be honest with you. Mm. No, no, <laughs> Sorry. it's, it's a sad <laughs> situation, bro. Yeah, it is sad. I think about it a hell of a lot, you know, like I mm. really do. Because I see young lads where I live, like I still live where I'm from, where I was born. <laughs> do not live in a rich area by any standard i see the lads there and i'm like i used to be like them but i just look and it's like it's it's a lot harder for them now and the tories shut down all the youth clubs so they can't even have that now as a final question mate who do you hope to be in the next few years because you know i might chat to you in another two years i might chat to you in another six months or whatever but who do you hope to be in the next few years uh 90 kilos no fat <laughs> um, nah, I don't know. I hope to be healthier. Like I'm not unhealthy, but I've been like the last two years I've been really like focusing a lot on my health because I'm past 30. So I was like, I mean, I've always been into I've been doing Thai boxing since I was like 14 on and off. In the last two years I got like really focused on it. Not just for the Thai boxing though, that's my community, that's my guys, that's who I grew up with. You know what I mean? And they're exactly the same as they were and they're very loving, good people. I advise a lot of people, I'm like, find a good independent combat sport gym. I've never been in a bad experience, like obviously bad experience, but they're always the community is so solid. People that can fight together in that sense, like young men especially need that. They do need that whether people want to accept it or not. Young men need that. 
doesn't always have to be combat sports, but they need to be men together. And they also need to, like, our gym is great. Like, we mix, it's, like, mixed, you know, and there's, like, very strict rules, like, 100% respect. You do not treat your female friends any differently. You spar with them. You interact with them. You don't try and fuck them, you know. And there's a real disgusting thing where, like, I've seen it a lot. Young men these days don't seem to be able to be friends with women, like, without trying to fuck them all the time. Like, that is a big thing that people need to talk about more, I think. Like, you can have a female friend. If she's hot, you don't need to constantly be thinking about trying to mm. get with her, you know. And that is, again, a big pressure from the outside of, like, this thing of, like, you have to get with this, you have to get with that. Anyway, yeah. so, yeah, I think that is a really, you know, I've been spending a lot more time there. That's made me feel a lot better. Um, but who do I want to be? I don't know, man. I, I don't really thought about that. I guess I want to be, like, I would love more money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's <laughs> the problem. I want to get bigger in my projects. I want my projects to be seen more. Because at the end of the day, you know, I ramble in this and people like what I say and whatever. But I'm not a fucking political commentator. I just got too many opinions. Essentially, I'm a journalist. And I want my journalism to be seen by as many people as possible. You know, I don't make things for other journalists. I don't care about winning awards. I am not in that circle jerk. You know, I could be, but I absolutely don't want to be. You know what I mean? I've seen it. I experienced it for a bit when I, when I was at Vice. And I don't want to be in that world. But I want young, like, misfit kids like I was to go, oh, that's cool. I can do that. You know what I mean? And maybe it's a bit of an arrogant thing to think I can be the guy that can do it. But I just feel like I get it. I understand it a bit. And a lot of the hurdles that were there for me coming up as a reporter, I don't want them to be there for other people. You know what I'm saying? But I guess, yeah, I, I guess I just want to be, I want to be a little bit more of a focused person as well. Like I do still get stressed out about things that are just not, just, just for some reason it stresses me out. And it's like, why? I know in my head, I'm like, it literally doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. But that is still stressing me out for like three days straight. So that is annoying. But yeah, I guess I want to be more focused, more calm. I want to be more calm. Like I'm not aggressive or I don't mean in that sense, like I'm a very calm guy in that sense. But I just, just with life, I just don't want to feel that there's an urgency to be constantly working. But maybe then my work would fall off. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a balance to strike, bro. Yeah, yeah. On that note, Jake Camerahan, thank you so much for coming back on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to you, mate. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it, man. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Jake for coming back on and being my returning guest for today's episode. I'll put some links to where you can watch those films we discussed, listen to Popular Front's podcast or its platform more generally, and follow Jake on social media in the show notes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on social media, guys. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Please buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four. That is on Saturday, October the 15th. It's not that long away, so please go buy a ticket if you haven't already. If you want to support us further, you can write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, or you can go to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk, or go to our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>